Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I break down one of Validia's growth investing quantitative models, which we extracted from the academic study by Partha Mohanran, a professor now at the University of Toronto. Usually in investing, buying expensive stocks is not a winning approach. But Mohanran's research, along with our own experience in running this model, shows that by focusing on firms that are profitable and more consistent relative to their peers, and that are reinvesting in their business, this can be a recipe for finding good stocks, even if they are expensive based on traditional value factors. We also talk about some of the tailwinds that have benefited this type of investing approach over the past decade. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Are you ready? Yep, let's do it. All right, this week we're going to um, continue with a theme that we did a couple weeks ago where we talked about one of our strategies. We talked In that past episode, we talked about our Buffett model. And we sort of asked the question, could or can Warren Buffett be quantified? And we sort of talked about the criteria that our Buffett model uses. And so continuing with that theme, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about one of the growth um, type models that we run on Validia. And unlike some of the other strategies we run, this is based on um, work that came out of um, the academic field, uh, specifically Parthamonian Ram who, when he wrote this, was a professor at Columbia. And he wrote a paper, um, the name of that paper, Separating Winners from Losers Among Low Book to Market Stocks Using Financial Statement Analysis. And we'll talk about the sort of what goes into that strategy and and some of the unique parts of it. But in terms of thinking about growth and growth type investing and growth like stocks, it's been really a phenomenal decade for expensive stocks. I was looking um, before before we jumped on, I went back to uh, remember that post that Jack Vogel wrote on Alpha Architect and he looked at, you know, buying the most expensive stocks. So he looked at, you know, what a portfolio would have returned if you would have bought stocks that were trading at 10 times sales. So it's like a 10 times price to sales ratio. And, you know, yeah. going back to the, the 1920s, it was a horrible strategy to underperform the market. But in the, in the decade that he looked at it, which his paper was as of March last year, so it was basically early 09 through March of 2019, you know, it showed that buying the most expensive stocks was the best, you know, not, 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 not the best strategy, but certainly outperformed the market. And, you know, that's, that's one of the inputs here to the Mohan Ram model that we'll, we'll get into, but it's just amazing how good of a period it's been for those types of companies. Yeah, you know, it's been, if you take what works over the long term and, and essentially flip it, you know, that's what you've got in the past decade. Big is, has worked over small. Expensive has worked over cheap. You know, everything that works kind of in the long term has sort of gone the other way. And that's certainly, and you know, we'll get into the Mohan Ram strategy, but any strategy that picks expensive stocks or picks growth-like stocks has certainly had a tailwind behind it in the past decade. But if, if you look at it in the long term, those types of strategies typically have a headwind against them which right. is that buying cheap stocks is usually much better than buying expensive stocks. And so we'll talk, we'll talk about Mohan Ram in that context. But, yeah, this, you know, we have to take everything that we see with results on these growth and you know, expensive-type strategies 
with a grain of salt over the past decade because we are looking at a very unique period in history and we are looking at you know performance that's not likely to continue going forward. Well, Mo Hanran was on um, Tobias Carlisle's podcast. Um, we know Toby personally. We've both been on his podcast. And they were talking about how good the strategy that we run, how well it's done versus all the different models on Validia. So that was a topic that they, they kind of got into. And you're right. you got to always put the performance of these factor-based strategies in the context of the type of market environment you're in and what has and hasn't been working. Um, but one of the things that, you know, you can think about with these strategies is a lot of times there are like diversifying effects to, let's say, a value strategy. So, you know, this strategy maybe coupled with another strategy, you know, provides some diversification benefit um, because there are regimes where value outperforms growth and growth outperforms value, like you said, over the long-term value usually works better. Um, but the complementation of each other, if that's been a word, the complementing of each other um, is important. Yeah, so we've talked before about using things like momentum as, you know, partners with value in terms of, you know, having lower volatility on an overall portfolio. And this is really, if you could complement value perfectly, what you would do is you would take a value strategy on one side and you would take a strategy that selects expensive stocks on the other, which is what this is. The reason you don't ever see that actually done is because selecting expensive stocks is a terrible investment strategy. And so although you might get the diversifying benefit of it, you would not you would be hurting your return substantially. You would do well in periods like this, but you'd be hurting your return a lot by buying the expensive stocks. What's interesting about Mo Hanram's paper, and we can talk about his strategy a little bit, is he took that headwind. So the, the first criteria of Mo Hanram's strategy is select the 20% most expensive stocks using the book to market, which is just the inverse of the price to book ratio. And so if you just start with that and you had no other criteria, your long-term performance is going to be horrible because you, you, selecting those 20% most expensive stocks is going to be a significant headwind against your performance. But what he was able to do on the long side of his strategy is by adding these other criteria, he was essentially able to overcome that headwind and even get a little bit of a positive excess return. So he was swimming against the tide, and he actually had, was able to get a positive excess return by selecting only stocks from within the 20% of the most expensive companies. And so that's really a huge accomplishment. And you know, before we talk too much about it, too, we should also just say that his strategy, like most academic strategies, was a long, short strategy. And in the paper, the vast majority of the excess return, as you would expect selecting expensive stocks, was on the short side. So you know, running portfolios like we run and you know, the strategies that are used, factors and ETFs, those are typically only long-only strategies. So for our purposes, we were only able to use the long portion of it. But it's important to note that the, the biggest excess return came from shorting the stocks that did not meet his criteria, not just buying along you know, the strategies that did meet, the stocks that did meet his criteria. But it is, it's a huge accomplishment that he was able to produce a positive excess return from within that 20% of expensive stocks because that's a huge headwind he's overcoming. Yeah, that's an that's a, uh, excellent point, and um, it's something he also talked about with Toby. Can we just talk for a minute about why these growth stocks do poorly? Can we just dig into that for one second? And, you know, I think it was – the reason I was – it's funny. I was just reading that migration paper again by – um, Eugene from my Kenneth French, and they, they kind of talk about this concept of the, the reasons why value outperforms over time and the reasons why growth underperforms. But, you know, in their paper, and we sort of know this, but what happens is these growth-like companies, which they're expensive because they have usually really good earnings growth, over time, that earnings growth, there's two things that happen. One, 
investors bid up the stock so the valuations are high, but two, competition comes in and earnings ultimately start to come down and revert to um, maybe not the long-term historical average of all companies, but within industries, you know, the, the earnings growth starts to slow. And because of that, you get these growth companies that move from like the growth-like valuations to more of like lower valuations because growth slows. So that's the reason why over time, it usually doesn't pay to, bu to buy a basket of expensive growth companies. Yeah, they typically fail under their own expectations. So they, the expectations for growth are very high. And as you get bigger, it becomes harder and harder to meet those expectations. And, you know, you're going to see that in the future with the FANG stocks. You know, if you look at the historical growth rates the FANG stocks have produced, they're, they're enormous. But as they have more size and scale, continuing that type of growth is, is going to be very difficult. And so, you know, one of the misconceptions people have is, you know, these growth companies are clearly better companies than the value companies, but that's not the issue. You know, the value companies are clearly worse companies. The question is, what are the expectations embedded in the stock price? And with the value companies, you typically have very, very low expectations embedded in the stock price, sometimes worse than reality. And with the growth companies, you typically have very, very high expectations. And so the growth companies sort of fail trying to meet those expectations. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So let's kind of start working through the Mohan Ram strategy. And to start, like you mentioned before, this basically starts by saying, let's identify the 20 most expensive stocks using the price to book ratio. So Mohan Ram didn't use earnings growth or anything like that. What he was really trying to say is, in this case, you know, a lot of growth stocks are very expensive. So I'm going to use the price to book or the book to market as the first cut of identifying those growth-like companies. Yeah, that's right. And you know, one of the interesting things about value versus growth is, although cheap stocks clearly outperform expensive stocks over time, your actual best individual performers come from that growth grouping. And so if you could ever figure out how to filter out the best per, the stocks that will do well out of that growth grouping from the vast majority of them that won't, you know, you'd, you'd essentially have a holy grail of growth investing. And so I don't think this strategy has that, but that's basically the intent of the strategy. So we start with the 20% of most expensive stocks using the price to book ratio. And then we try to use a series of criteria to say what stocks are most likely to continue that growth going forward. And that, that's what these other criteria are trying to accomplish. It's called the G score which is, you know, Joseph Piotrowski famously had the F score, and this is sort of the G score, which is the growth version of the F score. Right, because Piotrowski was a, he used, you know, uh, accounting-like uh, strategy to identify value stocks. So his was the F score, Mohan Rams is the G score. Do you want to talk a minute about, you know, in a lot of these criteria, so let me just go, uh, you know, so there's like profitability, and I would say, um, well, cash flow type criteria in here. And what Mohan Ram does is he says, you know, look for companies are rewarded or favored that, for example, that have, you know, return on assets higher than the industry average or cash flow from operations uh, to assets better than the industry average. Um, and then there's a ratio of both those things in there. He wants to basically see cash flow from operations be better than return on assets. But one of the things we were talking about is how this strategy tends to favor, you know, asset light firms. So do you want to just explain that a little bit more through the context of some of these ratios? 
Sure. So, well, first of all, the overall, the initial criteria of using the price to book as your valuation metric, that's going to favor asset light companies over asset heavy, heavy companies because the, the most expensive stocks, according to price to book, have the most intangible assets because intangible assets are not taken into account with the price to book. And the least expensive stocks have the, you know, the most tangible assets and the least intangible assets. And so you're starting off with a valuation criteria that's automatically going to favor sort of these asset light companies that have less hard assets and more intangible assets before you even get into the criteria. And then the, the second thing that's important to note with this strategy is we, we are comparing pretty much everything relative to the industry. And so when we're looking at any of these criteria, he compared a stock to its own industry. And so that, that's important because these types of things can vary dramatically between something, say, like financials and technology. And so by staying within the industry, those effects of just changing the industry are eliminated from the equation. And we're really just trying to see how does this stock look relative to other stocks in its industry. But within that framework, a lot of the things he's using have sort of have assets as the denominator. So a lot of things are scaled based on assets. And when assets isn't the denominator and you don't include intangible assets because they're not included, you know, according to accounting rules, then obviously you're going to get more of the companies that have more of the intangible assets and less of the tangible assets, which are actually on the balance sheet, are going to score higher. And so there's a lot of things going on in this strategy that favor companies with lots of intangible assets versus companies with tangible assets. And that, you know, you can debate whether that's good or, or bad long term, but in the most recent decade, clearly that has been a, a significant tailwind of the strategy. Because if, if you look at the types of companies that pass this strategy, they all are very, very high in intangible assets. Mm -hmm. The other thing that Mohan Ram wanted to see was this idea of consistency. So he wanted to see, and this I think is unique, you know, we kind of see it show up in other strategies like quantitative momentum where that model rewards, in terms of the momentum criteria, stocks that are exhibiting more consistent momentum. But what the Mohan Ram strategy does is it looks at return on assets. It wants to see the variance or the variability of return on assets be less than, less than the industry average. And also wants to see sales variance being less than the industry average. So this idea that companies that have more consistent business and operations are better within this group of securities. Yeah, you know, everything with G-Score is trying to get at one thing, which is this is an expensive company. This is a growth company. What's the likelihood that growth is going to continue into the future? And, you know, you talked about profitability first. Obviously, you know, highly profitable firms that are generating cash flow, those firms are likely to continue, the, more likely to continue the growth in the future. And then the second thing you mentioned, consistency. And, you know, this gets back to what, uh, it's a separate thing, but what Wes Gray found in Quantitative Momentum about momentum, which is pretty much with anything in investing, if you can get a more consistent upward path, you're better off than, you know, the, the biotech that's announcing a drug and going up 100% and then going down. And, you know, even if you end up in the same place, that consistent ride is better. And so he has these two categories or two criteria of return on assets and sales. And he's just looking at how consistent have those been over time. And if you've been more consistent than in your industry, then you get positive points for those criteria. So that's sort of the, the second grouping. You've got profitability, you've got business consistency. And then the last grouping is, are these companies doing things that would allow, you know, are they investing for the future and for future growth? And there's really three things that, that the strategy looks for. One is capital expenditures, two is advertising, and three is R&D. And you know, these are the things that typically, you know, when O'Shaughnessy looked at recalculating the price to book, 
with intangible assets, these are the types of things that create those intangible assets. Advertising creates, you know, a brand, which is an intangible asset. You know, R&D creates an intangible asset. So he's looking at, are you investing back in your business to try to sustain your growth into the future? Right. Yeah. And what, what happens basically is companies are scored based on each one of those specific criteria. So the best or top scoring G score stocks, which is what Mohammed calls his strategy, get an A. And what's interesting is within our database, you know, not a lot of stocks, I'd say a handful at most at any given time, actually meet all of the criteria at once. But when we build portfolios using this approach, we basically will always stuff the portfolio with either the top 10 or 20 securities. Um, and like we sort of mentioned and what they talked about, what, what Partha and Toby talked about in the podcast is, you know, among our lineup of models and we track a lot of value strategies, growth, growth at a reasonable price momentum, this one has been one of the better performers, um, largely due to the tailwind of, you know, these, these growth stocks, I think, performing well. But like you said, it does do some interesting things to try to get at, you know, is the growth sustainable? Are the companies profitable? Is the company investing in the future? So I think if you're going to develop or think about a growth type of investing strategy, those are the things that certainly you want to be thinking about. Yeah, and you know, we've been running this for about 15 years, and obviously that's a 15-year period where growth has just killed value. And so we have to take with a grain of salt the fact that it's our best performer, although it clearly has been. And you know, we have a lot of other growth and momentum type strategies, and this has done much better than them as well. But we have to you know, understand this is a very unique period. But I still think this is a very interesting strategy because you don't see too many growth. You know, growth is not a factor people talk about a lot. And the reason they don't talk about it a lot is it's been very difficult for academics to come up with long-term growth strategies that work over a period of time. And so what's unique about this strategy is this is a strategy he came up with, and he was able to test it over a very long period of time and produce an excess return over the market. And like you talked about before, you know, if that holds up in the future, this strategy is an excellent complement to something like value because it will be very negatively correlated. And when, when we go through these extended periods where value doesn't work and maybe these more expensive growth-type companies are working, you know, this can be a great complement to a portfolio of value stocks. And we reached out to Professor Mohanran, and I think hopefully he'll be on the podcast in the next month or two. So if you found this conversation interesting, which hopefully you did, make sure you uh, tune in to those future episodes because maybe you'll see him on here. So yeah, he, I think that's... He, he can ahead. tell me all the things I did wrong about his, all the things I came up with wrong about his strategy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> kind of tear it apart. But anyway, so, well, listen, we hope you guys uh, enjoyed this discussion. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarbono. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.